working through these questions that have been commonly asked in my time of pastoring. And uh, under any circumstance, tonight's message would not be a pleasant topic, but it's especially not tonight. Um, Some of you already know this. I knew about this this morning, but was not at liberty to... I did reference it, um, pray much for Dorothy and for Titus, um, her brother Doug and his wife Amanda Basinger, uh, their precious little girl Ellie Mae, one years old, one year old, uh, tragically passed away at their home this uh, early this morning, well, late last night, and uh, just a tragedy from every every direction you look at. That we are covering this subject tonight is probably providential, but I got to be honest with you, I feel like it's unfortunate. But God knew long before when I put these messages in order what we would need tonight. It's also a difficult message. And by the way, the Basingers, some of you know them. Many of us, I've only met them once, I think, since I've been here. But if you have access to them right now, the family's asking that we just, you know, leave them to to be with with their immediate family and, and work through this. And so if you have the means to contact them, I, I, I wouldn't right now. Just pray much for them. Um, their church is uh, is already stepping in and ministering to them there in South Carolina, and uh, as, as you would expect. And uh, so they're, they're okay as far as that goes. Um, but this is also a subject that touches so many people in so many different ways. And I am keenly aware, I am sensitive to the reality that for some, this kind of a message can rip open wounds that had healed over a little bit, and that's not my intention. My intention tonight is to try and offer some comfort and some information that can be helpful to someone that is going through this kind of a difficulty. Second um, Samuel chapter 12 is where we'll begin. As our question this week, the third in this series, is what happens when a baby dies? What happens when a baby dies? I, uh, I'm going to give you some statistics. According to the CDC, the current infant mortality rate in the United States is 5.6 deaths per 1,000 live births. Um, according to the March of Dimes, 10 to 15% of known pregnancies in the United States end in miscarriage at some point. Um, the most tragic of these statistics... 63.5 million babies have been killed since 1973. In 2020, according to the CDC, there was 19,582 infant deaths. That number sounds low to me, but that's what the CDC says. There's a statistic that the World Health Organization gives worldwide regarding children dying before the age of five. It's a number that I frankly don't trust, and so I'm not going to use it, but it's a lot of kids. It's a lot of kids. 
Now, you got to remember, we're talking about the world over, third world countries and war-torn areas and all kinds of things. So a lot of things are contributing to that number. But you go to any cemetery, any graveyard around here, and you see far too many headstones for children. Now, the question that's on our minds regarding this kind of thing is what happens to these babies? What happens to these children when they die? I'm going to give you the short answer, and then we're going to unpack it. Here's the short answer, and it's one of which I am 100% confident. They go to heaven. They go to heaven. Now, we've got three different perspectives from which we want to view this issue, and this is not going to be my cleanest outline ever. I didn't know how to put one together that was clean, really. Um, And so I just kind of gave you three things to think about. So let's pray, and we'll get into it. Father, I always need your help, but I especially do tonight to handle this delicate and sensitive subject in a way that most pleases you and is a help to your people. It could be that maybe an individual in here does not need this information for themselves, and thank you for that. But maybe they need it for somebody they love that's hurting. Or maybe they're hurting. Whatever the case may be, would you use this to help us? Because it's important that we know what the Bible teaches about anything and everything, even this. So we ask that you help us tonight. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. So as we discuss what happens when a baby dies, let's, let's begin, first of all, with the biblical narrative, a biblical narrative that helps kind of set some context for us. David has, of course, committed his great sin with Bathsheba, resulting in, um, in uh, her husband's death, um, her defilement, and this baby's death, the baby that resulted of this unholy union. And he has now been um, brought to an understanding of the seriousness of his sin by the prophet Nathan. By the way, thank God for godly people that are willing to speak truth to power. Nathan really was taking his life into his own hands bringing this news to David. And David, to say something about him and, and the kind of man he was in his repentance, he had a son later that he named Nathan. So good for him to appreciate the role that this man played in his life. Chapter 12, verse 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. 
Then David arose from the earth and washed himself and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house. And when he required, they set bread before him and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive, and when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David had an infant to die. And David, according to verse 23, clearly believes that this child will be seen by him again. That they will be reunited. Now the question we have to answer is, where does David expect to be when he and this child are reunited? Would you agree with me that there is ample biblical evidence that when David died, he went to heaven, the presence of the Lord? Okay, let me give you some verses. Acts chapter 13, verse 32. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Now we understand from a New Testament economy that one of the aspects of the will of God is that men repent and take Christ as their Savior, correct? If David fulfilled all his will, is it reasonable to conclude that believing on the coming Messiah was fulfilled in his life? Okay. We'll continue on, verse 36. For David said, For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers. That is a Jewish idiom implying that he had a good afterlife. Okay. Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith. Would it be reasonable to conclude that anyone commended in Hebrews 11 for their faith would also be a believer? Yeah. Verse 32, and what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, Stop the mouths of lions. Does this sound like the acts of unbelievers or believers? Children of God. Our logical conclusion would be that David went to heaven, and if David says the child won't come to him, but he'll go to the child, then it is our logical conclusion that that baby went to heaven. Okay. Now, I understand that in an Old Testament economy, there's some thought that says that heaven is not yet fulfilled, that paradise, either way, went to the place of bliss in the presence of God as opposed to hell. Okay. All right. So that's a biblical narrative that supports the idea that if a baby were to die, they go to the presence of God. Okay. Now, for lack of a better way of putting this, let's look at some biblical biology. Find your way to Psalm 139. I'll meet you there in a minute. I believe that the issue surrounding abortion and things like it is not the issue of life. Anyone who is intellectually honest will tell you that a baby from the moment of conception is life. There is movement, there is response, there is, there is life there. That's not the argument. The argument is personhood. 
Okay, personhood. Um, if you plant if you plant seeds in the ground and that seed germinates, that's life. Certainly not to the level of a human life, but that's life. The question is personhood, and with personhood comes rights. Correct. Okay. At what point is a baby recognized as a person by God? Now, there were some preachers that used to wrongly assume that when a child drew his first breath, that that's when they became a person because the Bible says that God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and Adam became a living soul. You cannot use that logic because the creation of Adam was a one-off event that didn't happen again. Okay, So you, you can't use that. When is a baby recognized as a person by God? Well, let's ask Jeremiah. Chapter 1, verse 5, before I formed thee in the belly. Wait a minute. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Sounds like a person to me. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Now, we're in Psalm 139, verse 14. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee, when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. Now, that just means that this child is still developing. And in thy book, all my members were written. What book is that? I believe it's the book of life. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. If God is already keeping a record, if God is already giving a a calling, if God is already recognizing a child at the moment of conception, then it is reasonable for us through a, a biblical biology lens to conclude that life and personhood begins at conception. And if that is a person, then that person by definition has an eternity just like we do. So if that person has an eternity... And if that baby goes to heaven, what form do they take in heaven? Do we have this limbo that exists in which the souls of these babies just kind of floats around until God doesn't? Absolutely not. Now, this may sound like an unpleasant thing. I don't believe that you'll get to heaven and there will be babies there to hold and cuddle. I don't. I didn't say your baby won't be there. I said I don't believe we'll see babies. Now, here's why. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, Jesus, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Now, there's no age in heaven, but I believe in appearance, This means that we're going to be like Jesus in appearance. How old was Jesus at the time of his death, burial, and resurrection? 33 years old. Okay, I believe it is logical to conclude from that that all of us in heaven will be in appearance around the age of 33. And even, even, you know, and by the way, this is a good 33. This is not a hard, hard run 33. Okay. 
Some of us hit 33, and it was, it was pretty rough at that point. You know, no, this is a good 33. All right. So when I get to heaven, and I've not been through what some of you have been through, but we've we've had three babies go to heaven before we got to meet them. I believe there are three adults that are waiting to meet me. Now, the question that I get frequently in in conjunction to this is, will I know my loved ones in heaven? And the answer is absolutely yes. And by the way, you'll know the ones you didn't get to meet here. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. Now, there's a lot going on in 1 Corinthians 13, and there's other things that Paul is talking about, but I believe within the context of that, we can take that to mean that I will know others in heaven just as they know me. Now, I want you to to think on the full import of that. And I know that some of you have a more direct connection to this kind of thing. I'm going to use my three children because that's the safest analogy for me to use. I've got three children in heaven that whenever I cross over and whenever I am able to be reunited with them, they will absolutely recognize me as their dad. And I will absolutely recognize them as my kids. But it goes further than that. When, you know, I don't know, Brother Trey crosses over, which hopefully isn't anytime soon unless it's the rapture when we all go. Brother Trey crosses over, and he's standing there, and he sees across the way a a fellow that, he shouldn't know, but he does. That's Paul. That's the Apostle Paul. He'll know him. No way that he should. No pictures exist of him. We, we, you know, we have no evidence of what Paul looked like beyond historical accounts that may or may not be accurate. But Trey will know Paul. But what's even neater to me is Paul will go, that's Trey. <laughs> He'll know him too. So whatever your situation may be, a young child, a miscarriage, whatever the case may be, I believe you got a a grown kid waiting in heaven that'll know you, and you'll know them. So we've talked about a biblical narrative and a biblical biology, but now let's 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 get into what we really need to hang on to, and that's a biblical theology. I want to give you some some statements that I can back up with Scripture, and I believe you'll agree with them, okay? Here's two. First statement, and if you agree with this statement, say amen. Statement one, God personifies love. 1 John 4, 16. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. 
God personifies love. He is love. All right, second statement. This love motivates God to offer salvation to all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Acts 17, verse 30, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere, all men everywhere, all men everywhere to repent. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God personifies love, and this love motivates God to offer salvation to all. Now, these two, these two statements that we agree with theologically would lead me to this question. And if, well, just listen to the question. Let's see how you come down on this. If this love is demonstrated to men who are capable of rejecting Christ, how much more would it be demonstrated to persons not yet capable of rejecting Christ? So this leads us to some questions that we want to ask and answer. Does God make distinctions between sinners of different mental and developmental abilities? Now, what do I mean sinners? You understand that every person born, with the exception of Jesus, is born with a sin nature. We are all stained by original sin. We all carry that federal stain given to us by Adam, every one of us. We are sinners by birth, we are sinners by nature, and ultimately we become sinners by choice. Okay. Does God make distinctions between sinners of different mental and developmental abilities? And my answer would be yes. Now we hear this term, the age of accountability. I don't really like that term because I don't think that there is a specific age. There is a point of accountability. And frankly, some people never reach it. What is it? The point of accountability is the point at which a person is held responsible for their sin and for their choices. And certainly most children under a certain age would not be held responsible. Though they are stained with original sin, they are not held accountable and responsible for that state. Well, Andy, can you back that up with Scripture that God makes a distinction? I can. Jonah. God sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach that they might repent. Okay? Jonah was sent to Nineveh, which is a gigantic city of his day, not only in size but in population. The very last book of the book of Jonah, last verse rather, of the book of Jonah says this. God is speaking to Jonah and he says this in Jonah 4.11. And should not I spare Nineveh that, Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons, 
120,000 people that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. Now, I think there's two groups of people that fall into that description. People that are too young to know their right and their left hand and people that don't have the mental acuity to know their right hand and their left hand. And in this city, there were 120,000 of them that didn't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. Does God make a distinction? I believe he does. But how about this? Deuteronomy 1 verse 39. Moreover, your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, and your children, which in that day, watch this, had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. Now, this verse doesn't specifically speak to what we're talking about, but does it back up the idea that God does make distinctions between people all stained by original sin he does make distinctions i believe he does so the first question does god make a distinction between sinners of different mental and developmental abilities yes yes he does okay here's another question what of the lamb's book of life revelation 20 verse 15 In fact, let's turn there. I want you to see this. Revelation 20, verse 15. It's it's a really direct, basic statement here. There's not any room for nuance. There's not any room to interpret it more than one way. Revelation 20, verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. No name, no heaven. So if our names are written when we accept Christ, and no one is granted entry without their name in the book, and by the way, God gives no qualifications in this verse whatsoever. No name, no entry if our names are written when we accept christ and no one is granted entry without their name being in the book what of babies what of people with mental infirmities or what have you that never accepted christ and thus never had their name written in the book how does god grant them eternal life Can I tell you, I think this one is a result of faulty theology and music. Now, I'm not saying we're going to ban this song. But there's a great old song that people love to sing. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. All right, here's the problem with that. The Bible never says when a name is written. We assume that because we sing it. But the Bible never says that the moment you accept Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It never says that. I have looked and looked and looked. 
But I tell you what I do know. I do know a name can be removed. Exodus 32, verse 32. Moses is praying, Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Now listen to the Lord's answer in verse 33. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Psalm Psalm 69, verse 28. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Revelation 22, verse 19. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. The Bible never says when a name is written down, but it clearly says in at least three different places that it can be taken out. So what is my conclusion with that? I can't come to any other conclusion than this. All names begin in the Lamb's book of life. Including those of every baby and everyone who mentally cannot reach a point of accountability. And those names that are removed are removed when God in his foreknowledge knows that the sinner has rejected Christ for the last time. You see, if the three children that that we miscarried never had a chance to accept Christ, their name never got written in the Lamb's book. No, I think it was already there. It was already there. And so, are they allowed entry into heaven? Absolutely. Because it's there. Give you an illustration. Many of you have been here long enough to remember our buddy Henry Montgomery. Oh, Henry. I never got the impression from Henry that he was of a mental level that he could really understand redemption, accepting versus rejecting Christ. He wanted to be baptized more than anything in the world. And we practice believers' baptism. And he would not let me alone about that. And so I sat down with him and I asked him all the questions that I ask of anyone that wants to be baptized. And of course, he answered in the affirmative to all of them. Yes, I've trusted Christ. Yes, I have this and that and the other. And I confess to you, I I just never got the impression that he could really truthfully answer. And Henry did lie to me on occasion. But this was finally what I came down to is, I don't know that Henry's saved, but I know he's safe. So he's safe enough that I'm going to take his word that he got saved and I'm going to baptize him. And when Henry left this world, I'm 100% confident that he went to heaven. Which, by the way, now he's not limited by the infirmities that he had here. When I get to heaven, I'm not going to hear, Brother Davis, Brother Davis, you know what I'm going to hear? Hey, Andy. It's good to see you. Sorry about that baptism thing. <laughs> if you were here, you know what I'm talking about. I told Henry. Henry had just had shoulder surgery, so I actually had another man in there with me, not because I couldn't get him back up, but I wanted to make sure and do this as gently as possible for the sake of his shoulder and everything. And I told Henry, I said, Now, Henry, here's all you need to do. You bend your knees, 
and we'll take care of everything else. Haven't lost one yet. Whatever you do, don't help us. Henry helped us. I mean, he flailed in there like a chicken. I mean, just water everywhere. But we got him under. Got him baptized. Here's the thing. I don't know that there was a moment in which he accepted Christ in the truest sense of the word, but I believe his name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Last question, and this is not meant to be unkind towards other groups of people, but I do need to touch on it theologically. What of election? Those that embrace what we call Reformed theology or Calvinism believe that election teaches that God has elected some to salvation and he has elected some to damnation. And they, they lean, those, that, those that take that position lean on another aspect of, of Calvinism called limited atonement, that Jesus only died and atone for those who were part of the elect. And if you're not part of the elect, then you're just theologically out of luck. Okay. Now, there are those who take an extreme position within Reformed theology, which, if I'm honest with you, is not that extreme. And it's the idea that there is the possibility that a baby is not part of the elect, and if that baby is not part of the elect, that baby dies and goes to hell. Now, most of the, I've never met anybody who embraces Calvinism that takes that position. I don't know anybody personally that takes that position. But there are some that do, and the reason I know that is I've read their books. Because if you take Calvinism to its logical conclusion, if you're not part of the elect, you don't get in. So those who take this extreme position allow for the possibility that a baby that dies outside of election goes to hell justly due to original sin. I'm going to read to you from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10, section 3. Okay. I have it in my study. I can show this to you. Infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, which worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. That sounds good, doesn't it? I left out one word. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated. Elect, which leaves the thought that there is the possibility of an infant not being elect. Can I just tell you that this position grossly misrepresents everything the Bible teaches about God's love and about his justice. You cannot back that position up by Scripture. God is love and God is just. And to condemn anyone to hell when they had no ability to receive Christ or reject him would be unloving and would be unjust as the Bible defines it. And thus I can say without question, I'm not operating off of my own emotions and my own way of thinking. I am telling you biblically, the God of the Bible is incapable of being that way. Anyone outside of the point of accountability 
may be rightly considered to be part of the elect and thus saved and in heaven. So let me give you a final thought. Has this been helpful, I hope? Abraham hit the nail on the head when he made this statement. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? There are a lot of things that I encounter that I don't have an answer for. I don't have an explanation for. And this is where I end up every time. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So my final statement on this would be this. Anyone who dies outside the point of accountability though not saved technically, is safe by the grace of God and is assuredly in heaven in the presence of our Lord awaiting our reunion with him. I believe that is true based on the biblical narrative. I believe that is true based on uh, biblical biology. And I believe it's true based on biblical theology. I don't understand why God allows more than 60 million kids to be murdered in this country. But if there's anything good to come of it, it's that heaven is populated with 63 million people. I don't know why God allows miscarriages and stillbirths and SIDS and all of that. But I know this, in every situation, those precious children wake up in the presence of Jesus and are there awaiting us. I don't know why God allows the extreme examples of mental deficiencies and difficulties that keep someone from being able, even at an old age, from being able to understand redemption and accept or reject Jesus. I don't know why God allows it, except that it's part of the sin curse. But I do know this, those precious souls, when they die, wake up in the presence of Jesus, whole forevermore. I don't know... I don't know personally Doug and Amanda. I've met them once that I know of. I don't have any standing to call them or to reach out to them. I'm sure their pastor is on top of that. But if I were speaking to them, I'd start out by not saying much because sometimes in a multitude of words there wanteth not sin. Sometimes it's better just to be quiet and just suffer and weep with somebody. But if I was compelled to say something, here's all I can say. I have no idea why God allowed this. 
I have no idea why anybody has to go through this. But here's what I do know. That precious baby is in heaven. Their eternity is secure. They can't come to us, but we can go to them. Even so, come Lord Jesus.